Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 477, with Mason Ayer. People, people just weren't great to be around. And I think part of that is sort of a general level of unhappiness and a super elevated level of stress. But I remember thinking, if I'm ever in a position where I'm running a business, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to treat people like people, not like commodities. If someone walks by me in the morning and says hello, of course I'm going to say hello back rather than just grunt and walk off. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What's sorcery? Sorcery is AP automation, digital invoicing, and time and money saved. That's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire account's payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic so with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest mason air mason my man are you feeling unstoppable today <laughs> about as unstoppable as I can on a uh, on a Monday morning. So after earning his Juris Doctor degree from the University of Virginia School of Law, Mason spent several years in the legal world before returning to his family business, Kirby Lane Cafe in Austin, Texas. Today, Mason Air is serving as the CEO of Kirby Lane Cafe. Under his leadership, the cafe has rapidly expanded and cemented itself as an iconic Austin business known for caring service and wholesome food served at a reasonable price. Clearly, we're just scraping the surface. I can't wait to dive more into your story and your advice, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? One of the things that really holds true for our organization, and it's actually what we consider to be a core value of our organization, is just be nice. Mm. Uh, Sounds cheesy, but uh, having been in a work environment where uh, that is not the case, um, in my in my former life as an attorney, um, if you can just manage to be nice to your people and be nice to your to your guests, uh, that goes a long way. Absolutely, and so, don't worry about the cheese. We embrace it here at Restaurant Unstoppable, and I couldn't agree more. Just the power of just being decent, right? Yeah, just being a decent human being, uh, and it sounds like it's not much to ask for, but um, it's certainly something that uh, that I struggled with when I was when I was an attorney, and so it's. 
it's really been an important part of our business here in the restaurant business. Great. Great way to get this thing started. So it started for you and your family in the early 1980s. Yeah. Why don't you take us to that point and what your life looked like back then? Well, I mean, the, the, the restaurants predate me by five or six months. Um, I, I think that, well, I know that the original Kirby Lane opened up on May 5th of 1980, and I was born on December 27th of 1980. Okay. Um, my, my folks started it. Um, they, well, let me put it this way. You don't have a baby right when you start a restaurant. And so I think that, um, I think that that's always led me to believe that I probably was not a planned pregnancy, <laughs> but, um, it worked out pretty well for all of us. Um, maybe your parents were the, celebrating the restaurant opening and that's how you came to be. That's, that's certainly a possibility. <laughs> um, you know, I haven't, I haven't given that too much thought <laughs> I don't blame uh, and you. I, I, don't I try not either. to give it too much thought. <laughs> All right. We can move on to spare you the thinking. It will just naturally pop into your head if you don't keep going. <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, it, it's funny. I was, I was going through a photo album. We moved recently and I was going through old photos, uh, as part of the, part of the move. And some of the very first pictures of me are, uh, in the restaurant. I mean, we're, we're talking three, four, five days old. Uh, and, and there I am with my mom holding me in the original Kirby Lane Cafe. Now, obviously, I don't have memories of that. But, but some of my earliest memories are of uh, that original location on Kirby Lane. And it's uh, still there, still going strong. It's changed a lot over the years. Um, but, I mean, I remember showing up with, with my folks and wanting to be helpful as a five- or six-year-old kid. And, um, I mean, honestly, how helpful could I have been, but, uh, it, it sort of spoke to, to who I was and, and the fact that I wanted to, to be part of the business in one capacity or another, uh, funny story. My first, my first job I ever had at, a at, at Kirby Lane was to go around with a paint scraper and scrape gum off the bottom of tables, uh, I think I think I was like six or seven, uh, and I think I was paid paid per piece of, of gum that was scraped off. But uh, it's um, my roots with this organization extend back a long, long ways. So, what was it like reflecting back at this time? And I'm right there with you. My parents opened uh, their restaurant when I was three, so around the time where I start really, I can really start remembering things is when they opened the restaurant. And um, it's kind of cool to reflect back knowing what I know today on how they ran their business back then. But knowing what you know today, what were some of the big lessons, some of the, the big things that they did that made you into the man you are today after just being around that type of culture, that type of atmosphere? So um, our situation was pretty unusual and I didn't understand it at the time. I understand it now. Um, my, my folks started this business together. They had two children together, but effectively they, their marriage ended in about 1985. Okay. Uh, I, I barely have memories of my father living in uh, the same house as uh, my mom. And I, I think it was right around the time that they opened location number two, that, that he ended up moving out. Um, and so it was an unusual situation that I didn't fully comprehend as a, as a kid. Mm. I just, I just knew that, um, mom and dad ran a business together and mom and dad weren't married anymore. Uh, and, and so it's this interesting dynamic that's played out over the course of the last 38 years where in one capacity or another, I've kind of always been in the middle. Um, 
and, and that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. I mean, it's a good thing in the sense that I'm drawing lessons from each of them because they're very, very, very different people. Um, my mom is methodical and uh, analytical and thinks through numbers and tries to reconcile uh, accounts to the point of obsession sometimes. My father is sort of the visionary big picture, lots of different ideas. We've got to rein them in sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so it's like I was getting it from both sides and it was very, very different, but all very good. Now the, the one commonality that I, that I, that I would say that the two of them have, and, and this continues to hold true today is the values they instilled in the organization. I've talked about just being nice. Uh, and that's true. I mean, that's been a, that's been an important part of the organization from day one. Um, I've told the story before, but it's a powerful one that I think is uh, illustrative of of what I mean when I talk about the values that were in the organization. In the um, in the mid '80s, the the AIDS crisis was at its peak, and we had they had a a guy working for them who was gay and contracted AIDS, and it, it was a I didn't really understand what was going on other than to know that this person uh, who I'd known was dying. Um, and it's a sad story, but I think, again, I think it's powerful. Um, meanwhile, his parents, uh, for whatever reason, and this is something I couldn't begin to understand, his parents had disowned him mm. uh, because he was gay. Didn't matter that he was dying. Didn't matter that... Uh, that he had this horrible disease. I mean, they, they disowned him and were no longer talking to him. So there, there we were, uh, in the hospital room. Um, I mean, I remember it was, it was Christmas time because my brother and I made a bunch of homemade decorations for, for his room. Uh, and so this guy who's a team member at Kirby Lane, his parents aren't there, but, but me and my family is. And I think that really speaks to, the nature of of the people that were behind this organization. I mean, those values have been instilled with me in me from from an early age, and um, I try to practice that. Distill today. what well, that value. I mean, you told it, the values there in the story, but summarize what the value is. To just be nice. Mm. Uh, I mean, is that what you're asking? Is to summarize yeah, well, what, well, what yeah, that like, value is? To you just know, be, nice? be human, right? Be there for your people. Make it more than just a job. Make it about relationships, right? Really yeah. make it human. And I think we've gotten really far away from uh, that in a lot of concepts, specifically restaurants that try to scale, right? Because generally, I think there are good people behind restaurants uh, when they start off small. But as you get bigger, as you scale, it gets more and more difficult uh, to rely on the human quality of things. And you rely more on the systems and the processes. And sometimes that human aspect of things kind of can go away, um, you know, but it sounds like, you know, you had that that quality there when your family was first getting started. And I hope it's still there today. Would you say it's still there at that level today? I mean, we try really, really hard. And I mean, I think we get it right more often than we get it wrong. Uh, but for an industry that is notorious for not treating its people well, we really, really try to provide good opportunities for our people. Mm -hmm. And whether that means uh, providing them with health insurance, which we've done for many, many years, well before it was mandated by the law, to um, no one in our organization has paid minimum wage. Um, and that's been the case for a long, long time as well. Um, we try to treat our people 
better than the industry standard. Let's bring it back to your mom and your dad, uh, because you mentioned something that I, w- I really want to put emphasis on. Um, it sounds like they were a good match as far as business partners. The things uh, they, they complemented each other well. Your mom was more of the attention to detail, the little things, the day to day, the numbers, the person that kind of reels in the dreamer, the visionary, the, uh, the person that's you know seeing the potential. Right? Who was your dad? After they broke up, were they still in business together? I'm kind of confused as how did that work. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what that's what um, is unusual about the situation is yeah after they after they their marriage ended they continued to be business okay. partners. So that's interesting. Uh, most was, people I feel like would totally walk away, but it seems like they work together well uh, because those that 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 uh, that that combination t- in my experience talking to so many su- successful people that's a, that's a recipe for success and they had the same values. That's the key thing, and that's the thing that binds people together: the same vision, same value, same mission. So when all that's the same and you complement each other's skills. Uh, their skill sets, it seems to be something that works out well. So is that what you think what kind of was going on with your parents? Um, well, you're generous to say that they work together well, <laughs> because I don't know okay. that that's the case. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, it, there's a lot that that happened that I didn't, that I didn't necessarily okay. see. Um, but I think that the skill sets complement each, each other well. I mean, my mom has always been uh, the accounting side and you know, balancing numbers, producing P&Ls, um, just the nitty gritty financial side and, and holding holding that side of the business together. My father historically had been the operational side, um, menu okay. development, um, food ideas. And so I think that I think that it was a good it was a good mix of skills that we're able to sustain the restaurants over, over 30 years. Yeah, That's another um, point that I wanted to make because they opened the restaurant in 1980, early in the 1980s. Uh, you grew up in the restaurant, but you went on to pursue your own career, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, but what year did you come back to like join the family business? Well, so as a kid, I, I grew up working in, in the restaurants. I mean, and it was very much working in the business. I mean, it wasn't there wasn't anything strategic that I was doing. I was bussing tables. I was waiting. I learned how to cook um, in high school because you know I had jobs yeah. in the restaurant. Um, I ended up leaving Austin and going off to the East Coast for school. Um, really enjoyed myself there. Uh, learned a lot. Uh, the The path I took was one of uh, I did international relations for undergrad, and then in, I went on to law school. Uh, not not necessarily because I wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. It was more because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and so the easiest way to delay making a decision is to go to grad school. And so <laughs> okay. that's what I did. Um, and now, I've talked to I have a lot of friends who are attorneys. Um, I've been around attorneys for a long time, and most people don't enjoy law school. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I loved my time there. Uh, I thought it was super interesting. I learned a ton. I developed a skill set and a way of thinking that I don't know that I wouldn't have necessarily developed had I not taken that path. Um, I never really anticipated that I was going to end up back in the restaurant business. I mean, maybe on some level I thought about it. In fact, one of the things I I did in law school, I was very deliberate in doing this, is I I took a franchise law class. Um, not not because I was necessarily interested in, in franchise law, but because somewhere in the back of my mind, I I probably had this thought of, you know, this might come in handy one day. You know, you, you never you never know what situation I might be in. This might come in handy, and that's exactly that's exactly why I took the class. Now, the lesson the lesson learned was, 
I don't think I'm ever going to franchise this business, um, which is really good. Um, so I'm, I'm talking a lot before answering your original question, which <laughs> yeah. is when did I come back? I'm making to the notes because you're getting some good stuff. I want to come um, back to you. Uh, but yeah, when did you come back to the business? When did you say I'm just going to go back to the family business? What, what year was that? Uh, I came into the business in 2010. Okay, so 30 after years practicing law for a number of so years. That's 30 years that the business sustained yeah. without your influence. And maybe you were working there. You're part of it. Like you, you weren't like you know. The, you grew up in this restaurant. It was a part of you, but what was it about your parents that, I mean, that's a successful business. Most people would look at a 30 year run and go, wow, that's, that's amazing. What was it about their business relationship that made it work so well? I don't know. I, I mean, I really don't. And I'm not trying to skirt <laughs> the question. I honestly don't know. Yeah. Um, it's, I think initially they brought a, they brought a restaurant to market that filled a need that, that wasn't being filled in Austin, which was, affordable food, uh, high quality, affordable food, um, that, I mean, frankly, they pioneered farm to table in this city. I mean, they were doing farm to table in the eighties, um, before farm to table was even a thing. Uh, and I think that's pretty neat. Um, they cemented this business as a real Austin institution. They, they were hiring people that had tattoos and, and piercings long before that was accepted. Um, they were always very open and non-judgmental of other people, and I think that I think those are the things mm. that led to the emergence of this Austin institution. Um, that's that, that's what I would try to pinpoint. That's some key things right there. I feel like we're so we we have these standards of people sometimes, and we paint this picture, which is good to have that standard to paint that picture of who you of who your your ideal employee is, but are you looking at the right ideals, right? Are you looking at the things that really matter? And it sounds like your parents looked at who the person was, not necessarily what they looked like on the outside or what the, you know, what that might be. Is that safe to say? So they hired a diverse workforce. I hired people of all different types of, of backgrounds with all different types of, of viewpoints. Um, it, I think we were very much a reflection of the character of Austin. Um, and I think that continues to hold true. And we see that with the fact that, that over the years we've won so many awards for being the most uniquely Austin business or, or something along those lines. Um, because I think we do embody what our little, uh, little college hippie community, which has now exploded to 2 million people uh, here in central Texas is. Okay. So did you ever have the, the plan to come back to the, to, to the business? Was that always kind of in the back of your mind or was it not when you were thinking about leaving to go to college? Um, when I was thinking about leaving to go to college, it was not. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it occurred to me, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't options number one, two, or three. Um, I was going to go work on Wall Street, or I was going to go be a consultant, or I was going to do any number of things. Um, but falling back into the family business was not something that I had had really given a whole lot of thought. Um, and it was really a confluence of, of factors that led to the decision to to jump into the family business. Um, Let's hold off on that because I want to stay chronological. So you go to law school. You said you loved or this, this was grad school was when you were in law. Yeah. 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 I loved I loved law school. So get specific uh, yeah. about that. What was it about law school that you love? What were the big things that you pulled from that experience? Well, I thought I was around a really interesting community of people, which which that helped. Um I mean, I really enjoyed my friends and the relationships that I built there. I also really enjoyed learning about how the world worked. And, and I, I, don't, I don't mean – I mean that in the sense of 
how do how do businesses interact? How does tax work? How does how does secured transactions work? And I, as as I took these different classes in law school, I really gained a, a pretty interesting perspective of how of how business works, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it just it opened up all kinds of all kinds of information for me that that I wouldn't have seen. Uh, had I had I just jumped into the workforce, get and speci- I really enjoyed that. Get specific, Mason. Like extract one, two, or maybe even three big lessons you pulled from that part of your life, uh, and you can get granular if you can that you apply to your day to day today. I've always I've always had a really strong work ethic, um, but law school required an even stronger work ethic. Um, I mean, I was at a I was at a top ten law school, and it's not like it's not like your classmates are are people that just ran around the best of the best. And uh, to do well at that law school, I really had to work hard and I had to be diligent and organized. Um, and that that's not to say I didn't work hard in college. It was just a different experience in law school. And then creating systems for myself around around how I would think through various coursework. Now, there's a big difference if you're if you're Taking a class that's code-based, so for instance, a tax class, uh, or it's driven by code versus one that's that's non-code-based. So, for instance, torts, um, where it's all it's all case law. The, the, there's two very different ways of thinking through those items, and um, I actually naturally gravitated towards the code-based classes. I found it more interesting. So, I mean, this is going to sound incredibly boring, but one of the most interesting classes I took in law school was on ERISA, which okay. regulates pension plans. Um, I mean, it's it's about as dull as it gets, but it was fascinating to me. Which part of that's uh, fascinating? That what, 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 what is so fascinating about that for you? Well, I think that I had a great professor. I know that I had a great professor, and that really helped. Um, so, just really interesting to hack this mind-numbingly complicated piece of legislation and understand how it worked. Um, so let's dive into legislation for a second, because I think there's a lesson in here. Why is it so important to have these regulations, to have these legislations? What did you learn about the significance of that type of order? And helpful as I've had to unpack things related to the business and, and whether that's a lease, which granted is not, is not code based or digging into Texas law. Uh, and I'm able to understand if I, if I need to open up the Texas business corporations act, uh, I'm sorry, it just changed a couple years ago from the Texas business corporations act, um, to, uh, a, a new code, but, but that was the predecessor. Um, I'm able to, I'm able to work through and understand exactly how our impact, how our business might be impacted, um, under different scenarios. Okay. So that's been important. So you can kind of be ahead of the curve. You can look to what's happening in the world today, what's happening in legislation, how that's going to impact your business. So you can kind of anticipate the things you'll need to do now to be ready for those, those legislations that are about to pass. Yeah. I'm in a, in a sense, certainly, although I would caveat all that with, I consider myself to be a recovering attorney. So <laughs> please don't, please don't accuse me of being an actual lawyer. Okay. <laughs> uh, so one other thing I picked up from your story while you're in college is uh, you created systems for yourself, which is huge. Give us an example of how you created systems for yourself and how, how that helped you. In, in law school, the, the standard practice and everybody, everybody has a different way of going about studying. Um, 
but essentially, and, and there's some exceptions, but essentially most classes in law school, uh, there's a final exam and that's it. You are, you, there is no other grade than your final exam that you take in December or in May. And it's, it's basically, you've got one shot and you either get it right or you get it wrong. And you were asked to go through a, an entire semester's worth of material and answer a question or a number of questions that are related to what you've learned over the last three or four months. Um, and that's a little bit, it's a little bit unnerving. Uh, that's a lot of information to need, uh, to, to need to understand, um, for your single grade, uh, that has massive implications beyond that class, um, in terms of where you get a job or what you end up doing. And so I created what, what the standard practice is, uh, among, among law students, um, is to start outlining your material, uh, in advance of your final. And, and that essentially means going through and distilling your notes, uh, pulling out the important pieces of information, looking at, um, sort of thinking through all that's been taught to you. And I am somebody that is whatever the opposite of a, of a procrastinator is. That's, that's what I am. I mean, I am, I, I would start outlining my classes and my notes uh, a month and a half before the final exam, which, wow. which I think was a little bit unusual. I don't, I think a lot of people would put it off into the last minute. Um, but because of, of my personality, I needed to do that in order to not, in order to not go crazy. Okay. Um, and so I continued to be very, very meticulous, very ahead of the curve when it comes to hitting deadlines or getting done with the things that I need to get done. And so I think that that's something that really came into, into its own when I had these, for all intents and purposes, incredibly stressful exams coming up. Um, but I was able to manage that stress by really keeping myself organized. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that holds true today as well. That is a huge lesson. It's a, a quote I say all the time, and I probably say it too often, but what the heck, I'm going with it again. Discipline is freedom. And when you have that discipline to, to take care of the things that uh, might be a problem later, you take care of those things now, you, you're ahead of the curve right? constantly. That leaves time for you to do the things that most people don't have the time to do because they're always reactive and not proactive. And it sounds like that's a big part of who you are that makes you successful. Is that safe to say? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, I have friends that, that put things off into the last minute and I'm not, there's no judgment there. I just couldn't do that. I, I don't function that way. And it would, it would make me nuts. It would make me nuts. So give me one habit, something that you do daily to make sure that you're staying on top of the things that are important in like being proactive, I guess. How do we do that daily? You know, there's things that, that I should be doing more often that I think would help with this. But one of the things that I that I do, which has on its face nothing to do with work, nothing to do with the restaurants. So I'm incredibly diligent about going to the gym mm. and having that time to work really hard and clear my head and not be bogged down with sort of the fog and haze of work. Uh, and instead have time where I'm working on myself. Mm. Um, it, again, it's, it sounds a little, it's, it's not something that directly ties to what I'm doing on a day in and day out basis, but it's absolutely essential for me if I'm going to function at a high level um, at work. Uh, another thing that I, I should be doing more and I've made a point to do more and I just haven't been able to get myself on a routine 
is daily meditation. Mm. Um, there's something to be said for taking a step back and and trying to clear your mind. Yeah. And when I have done that, I've really benefited from it. But you have to be super deliberate about it in order to make it happen because there's a million excuses as to why you don't have time to take that five or ten minutes. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to I'm right there with you. I'm trying to be better. I have been uh, making time a couple of days a week, but I really want to do it daily. And I think this, the secret to that is is making time in the morning for yourself before anything else happens. Uh, and that means getting up an hour earlier then you get up an hour early, but also might mean not going home and binge watching a couple episodes to like wind down, like really being, uh, I guess what's the word discipline to, you know, get home, take care of what you need to take care of. Maybe put a list together for the next day and then get to bed so you can wake up early so you can take care of yourself. And like you said, we got to take care of ourselves before we can take care of anybody else because nobody's ever going to rise to the standards higher then we set for ourselves. Like we got to set that high standard for ourselves, hit it. And we can't expect anybody to show up working at a higher standard that we set for ourselves. Um, so it's so powerful. Yeah. 100% agree. And and you hit on something else in there that I think is super important and that's getting enough sleep. Um, man, if I don't get enough sleep, it's, uh, it's, I might as well not even be at work. Awesome. Great stuff. So um, one other thing I want to dive into uh, real quickly is a lesson or two from franchise law. You mentioned uh, you loved franchise law and you learned a lot about franchise law, maybe even learned why you shouldn't get into franchising from those courses. So touch on that a little bit deeper before we get into you coming back and the impact you had on uh, taking over the family business. Sure. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I took that franchise law class probably with some inkling in my mind that, you know, I might just end up in this restaurant business deal at some point. Um, and what I ended up learning from that was franchise agreements are really, really challenging. And it's a, it's a way to monetize your business pretty quickly, but you also risk losing control of your brand. Mm. And I mean, I look at our, our, our business is not franchised. And I look at how difficult it is to maintain a consistency, maintain a consistency of brand across our seven locations, which were all located within about 35 mile radius. Um, it's really challenging to, to maintain that consistency. What do you mean by and that though? Like maintain your brand. I'm, I just want to make sure I get clear on that. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. Um, is the experience for, our guest going to be the same at the location that is in North Austin versus the one that's in the Western suburbs? Is it going to be the same experience? Is the food quality going to be the same? Is the, is the consistency of service going to be the same? Does the look and feel of the restaurant align? Um, or has someone who's operating those, those restaurants, has someone uh, gone rogue and started doing things completely differently? Um, and to me, having a consistent brand where you are making a promise to your guests that if you come into my business, if you come into my restaurants, doesn't matter which location it is, you're going to have a high quality experience and you can get the same great items at, at each of our locations and they're going to taste the same and they're going to look the same and they're going to smell the same. I think it's an important promise that you make. And, and not having a consistent brand where the experience at one location is dramatically better than the experience at another, uh, that's a really frightening thing. And 
and, and terrible for business. And, and that's part of the reason why uh, franchising out what we do, I think, could be a really, really big step backwards for our organization. What do you think? The, what is the variable in franchising out your brand uh, that is the most, I guess, hmm, has the most negative impact? What is going on in that model that doesn't make it work? Well, I mean, I don't want to say uniformly that it doesn't work because I know for many brands it does. Um, for us, I don't think it would because what we do is I, what we do is incredibly complicated, and I, I say that in the sense that it's not like we're it's not like we're Jiffy Loop where we're changing oil. I mean, we are a full service restaurant that has. 75 different menu items, uh, a million different moving pieces. Uh, nothing about what we do is easy. Uh, and that's not to say anything bad about Jiffy Lube. But I think that the models that are better for franchising are one where there's more simplicity, mm. less complexity. Uh, it's worked for McDonald's because they have – far fewer menu items and far fewer, fewer ingredients. They're not full service. Um, I think Brinker would, and I, I can't obviously speak for Brinker, but I know that in recent years, Chili's has gone back and repurchased a number of uh, franchised uh, locations because they wanted to maintain that control over the brand. And so yeah. the thing that ends up happening with franchising, and this is what I saw in that, in that franchise law class, is you have a franchisee that goes rogue or isn't a good steward of the brand or is doing things completely differently. There are real serious legal challenges to getting that franchisee back in line or wrestling away control of that franchise agreement from them. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really challenging. That's why I basically... After taking that class, I was like, okay, that's, that's works for some people. It's not, if I'm ever in the family business, it's not going to work for us. Yeah. And you know, I agree with you. It's usually one person. I think the biggest challenge when it comes to franchising is people get their, their eyes or focuses on growth, uh, outward growth, physical growth. And they start just taking people on that aren't aligned with the values, the, 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 the vision, the core, the mission, right? All these things, these cultural things that we set in place to keep people aligned. And then they go rogue, like you said. And it's, it's, it usually stems from that, that over ambitious desire to go big and make money fast. Uh, and they kind of lose their way in doing that. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I wouldn't for sure. So this goes back to what I talked, was talking about earlier when it comes to the different things we do that I think make us special and that are differentiators for us as an organization. Um, if you franchise out your business and you have the wrong franchisee, uh, maybe maybe that franchisee starts paying minimum wage or stops offering health insurance or starts cutting corners uh, in a way that diminish what makes us who we are. And, and that's what really frightens me. Yeah. And I'm right there with you. I only interview independent operations on the show. Every once in a while, I make an exception with a franchise or a corporation that is – has managed to hang on to its values. And one thing I have known or I've, I've noticed from these franchises that, that do hang on to their values is they grow very slowly and they're not willing to sacrifice yeah. values for somebody who has the cash to get involved with the franchise. Like you got to get, you got to like pass the test. You got to come on board and go through 
like maybe an apprentice program or something where you, you meet the standards to join the team. And there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it might, you might not get the same impact right away. You might not get the same results right away, but the longevity always seems to be a little bit more uh, impressive from what I've noticed with these people. 100% agree. Awesome. Um, so what ultimately made you come back? I'm curious. So at what point were you like, maybe this family restaurant thing is for me? What was going through your mind? <laughs> um, what was going through my mind was that I absolutely hated being a lawyer. Okay. Um, Why? Is, is, well, so as much as I loved law school, take that and, and sort of create the exact opposite. And that's how I felt about being an attorney. And it goes, um, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons. Um, I was working like a dog, and uh, it wasn't uncommon to have things happen. Like uh, I'd be getting ready to leave the office at leave the office early, and I'm saying that in quotes on on a Friday at, at six o'clock. Um, <laughs> Did that really change when you became a, a restaurateur, though? <laughs> uh, it's just different. Yeah, I guess I hear you. Right, it's just different. Yeah, um, we still have fire drills. There's still there's still long hours and there's a lot of work. It's just, but it's a different context. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I'd be getting ready to leave the office and I'd get an email or a phone call saying XYZ client isn't going to be able to make payroll on Monday. We need to get an emergency loan facility in place over the weekend. Uh, it needs to be done by Sunday and didn't matter if I had plans. Didn't matter if I was going out of town. None of, none of that was relevant. What mattered was I needed to get that done. Mm. And um, I didn't love that. Um, I, I didn't like that at all. I was also around a lot of very, very unhappy people, which, I mean, I believe unhappiness is contagious. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I found, I mean, even things like my language. Uh, I'm not somebody who swears or, or uses foul language on a particularly regular basis. But when I was when I was in that environment, I was around a lot of people that would use pretty horrific language. And I found myself saying things I just couldn't even imagine saying. Um, I'll I'll admit that I'm a potty mouth myself sometimes, but I do it in good nature at least. (laughs) And I understand that. And and if I'm going to, if I'm going to, if I'm going to drop an F bomb, it's going to be good natured. Yeah. It was not that when I was an attorney, Mm. Um, it was usually out of anger Mm. that that I was around people using that kind of language. Um, The other, the other piece that that really kind of drove me away from that is people weren't very nice. Uh, people people just weren't great to be around, and I think part of that is the, sort of a general level of unhappiness and a super elevated level of stress. But I remember thinking, you know, if I'm ever in a position where I'm running a business, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to treat people like people, not like commodities. Yeah. If someone walks by me in the morning and says, hello, of course I'm going to say hello back rather than just grunt and walk off. When, when I think of that world that you're in, the one world word that comes to my mind is very opportunistic where people are willing to get ahead and do whatever it is to get the most out of their situation, the best situation for them at the expense of other people. And they're like, you know, usually in in that world of law, uh, it's about doing the best for my client uh, at the expense of maybe really screwing over this other person. There's always one person that's trying to come out better. And that is just a really gnarly, nasty, crappy feeling. 
I don't. I don't like. It was. It was a zero. It was a zero sum game on a lot of different levels. Yeah, and what the cool thing with the restaurant industry, a lot of it's about creating win win situations. How can we go into the situation that is the best possible situation for both of us? Whether it's the the restaurant and the guests, the restaurant and the vendor, the restaurant and whatever, like the community. How can we create something that's best for everyone? And if you have that mentality, man, what a complete opposite, like one eighty from what you were coming from. Yeah. No. That's that's exactly right. Uh, a, A happy guest is is good for our staff and it's good for the overall business awesome. uh, i mean it's it's a it's a synergistic a synergistic environment where it's win 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 yeah um so and we, that's a really that's that's a really great thing we get about 20 minutes together of this free-flowing conversation uh maybe 15 minutes and i want to spend the majority of now or of our remaining discussion discussing how you came back uh, what the state of the restaurant was like when you came back and where you took it, how you scaled it, the things that the, the key things, if you can just narrow it down to a few key things that you did, that you had an impact on the business, what were those things? For most of the history of our business, um, my folks worked really, really hard to not make very much money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the story of most, of most restaurants. Um, they just, they just happened to be able to just grit it out and make it for 30 years. Um, when I showed up and I, I say this, um, knowing what I know now and, and, and looking at this with 2020 hindsight, uh, if I knew then what I know now, I probably would have been too scared to make a switch from a stable, relatively stable law firm environment, albeit one where I was miserable. Um, to one where essentially on day one, um, I was put in charge of a business I knew nothing about. Um, so Mason, what did you know then, or what did you not know then that you know now? No, I didn't, I didn't really understand, um, what sort of metrics we needed to be looking at in order to ensure profitability. I didn't understand menu, menu engineering. I didn't understand branding. I didn't understand organizational dynamics. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. I mean, the things that I've learned over the last eight years, um, I mean, that's a grad school program in and of itself. Uh, when I first came in, what what essentially existed uh, was, and I, I, would, I would go ahead and call it an iconic Austin brand, but what existed were four, four very, very different locations that all happen to be called Kirby Lane Cafe. Okay. Um, so different menus, different pricing, uh, different procedures, different ways of doing things, um, different looks, different feels. Uh, essentially, the four locations that existed when I came in were a reflection of the general manager that was running each of those locations. Why is that a problem? Um, well, I think this goes back to the uniformity of brand and the brand promise discussion that we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, I, I want to provide an environment where our guests are going to have the same experience at location one as they are at location four. And there's not going to be a big differential between those two. Um, I think that I think that it's a really, I think your brand promise is integral for growth and for profitability. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't know a whole lot when I came into the business, 
but I did know that I wanted to create a uniformity of brand. Mm. And um, that was really what I was focused on for the first couple years. So that's the uh, first that thing learned. you noticed when you came back. You're like, there needs to be uniformity. We need to have one brand across all four locations. This is, is this probably, is it safe to say this is the first thing that you, you picked up on that you started that getting is, your attention to? Yeah, unquestionably, that's the first thing I picked up on. So what, um, what did that process of, of taking action on this look like? Well, so I looked at our existing staff and our existing administration to determine, okay, do we have the right people in place? And I made the conclusion, I came to the conclusion pretty early on that from a training perspective, we did not, and that we needed to hire somebody who could come in and be a director of training for the organization. And so we got very, very lucky and um, hired a woman who had been a corporate trainer, global corporate trainer at Chili's, um, who was looking, she'd been there for six or seven or eight years and was looking to make a change and uh, came into our organization. And from the word go, I mean, she was just, she was, was a rock star and really took a, a nascent or non-existent training program and revolutionized it and, and brought training across the entire organization to, cr- to create a uniformity uh, that didn't previously exist. Um, the other piece that she tackled, that we tackled as a team, is for so many years, Kirby Lane Cafe had this reputation of good food, slacker service. Like your your weight person is just as likely to be to be high as not. And whether or not that was true, I I, I don't even really want to speculate. But that was the reputation, and so it was really important to me to to work to shed that reputation. Um, one of the things I did early on, I mean, this was this was in my first six months, um, and it was a controversial decision at the time, and people were up in arms about it. But we used to allow people to smoke uh, while at work. Um, our staff was able to take a break during their shift and go out back and and have a couple cigarettes, and then get right back into the restaurant. And I always felt like, A, um, from sort of a sanitary standpoint, it's, it's kind of gross to have your server smelling like cigarette smoke. Yeah. Uh, and B, it presents opportunities for bad behavior and bad things can happen. And so if someone wants to go and take a break, they can take their some, – someone even said, well, I don't, I'm not going to take a smoke break any longer. I'm going to just take a bacon break where I'm going to go and have some bacon. And it's like, well, that, that works. You're welcome to do that. Um, but we eliminated smoking and uh, everybody was going to quit. I mean, there were so many people that were so upset and everybody was going to quit. And I think we lost two people across a workforce of 250 at the time. Um, and so that ended up being a really good decision as well. Yeah. And I don't think people are, they don't fully understand how off putting it is for people who don't smoke to have that smell, to be handling the food. Uh, to, you know, it, it's really powerful smell if you don't smoke and um, people are, you know, you're, it's unsanitary. You're touching your mouth, you know, and, lot, you know, it's just a lot of, a lot of things are going through the guest mind when they smell that, that don't, don't need to happen. Um, plus people take advantage Correct. of it. They're taking like five smoke breaks in a, a five hour shift and it's like, geez. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, so just to summarize, when you came back, the first thing you needed to do, you noticed was you needed to fix your people. So you did that by surrounding yourself with the people that had the knowledge and the skills that could take you there. You hired somebody and you were, you created uniform training and you improved the standards of service and you kind of, you kind of rebranded the people. It sounds like. 
Yeah, that was that was a really important piece. I mean, it goes back to the Jim Collins uh, philosophy of not only do you need to get the right people on the bus, you need to get the right people in the right seats. Mm-hmm. And we had some of the right people, but they weren't necessarily in the right seats. We had a lot of wrong people, and it took it took a couple years uh, to to exit those people that didn't need to be on the bus in the first place. How do you go about doing that? How do you, how do you do that gracefully getting rid of the people that are dead weight that might not be right for the brand you want to create or, you know, the the new brand. How do you do that without, you know, people that might've been with you for a long time who've been loyal to you? Um, I don't know. I don't know that I would ever characterize letting somebody go as, as graceful. Uh, it's a tough situation. It's not anything I've ever enjoyed doing. In fact, it's probably my least favorite, the least favorite portion of my job. Um, but I mean, there's a couple of instances where it became very clear as we started making organizational changes and doing things differently that certain people just, they weren't coming along. Mm. Um, they, they didn't, for whatever reason, had a different vision for the organization or a different vision for how things should work. And, and they weren't coming along and essentially they self-identified by not being on board with the new agenda. So it, and it sounds like the best way Did I cut you short. Do you want to finish your thought? I can let you finish. No, 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 go ahead. It sounds like the best way to handle that situation is just to set those new standards and to make sure everybody's meeting them. And I think the natural order is those, those who aren't right for the new culture you're trying to create will naturally wean themselves out over time. Yeah. And some of them, some of them left voluntarily. Other, others not, just um, keep that but we have the right team in place yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, um, this is something I say, I want, I want to get your thought on this. I think the, the good way to maybe some, you said some people weren't coming along. Maybe that means they weren't changing their habits. They weren't, um, willing to improve their standards to, to meet the new standards. Excuse me. Uh, but also, and sometimes you, you, you set these higher, these higher standards and sometimes skill set is an issue where people aren't able to meet, uh, the, the skill standard, uh, I think one way you know to address that is say, hey, you have some great skills. And these are those skills, and they don't shine here. And we're holding you back by by keeping you employed where you could be doing a lot better somewhere else if you focus on your skills, your strengths. What do you think about that? Um, I think that I mean I think that's a good way of looking at things. I, I, I think in in the context when you're having that conversation and you're basically saying to somebody, your skills don't align real well with with what we're doing and now you need to go find another job. I think that it's difficult for that person in that moment to, to see that as a good thing. Although ultimately um, when you have some of these, frankly, cultural misfits that, that don't fit with the culture of our organization, I think ultimately that their departure is better for better for the organization and better for them personally. Mm. Um, It just may take a second for them to, to get to that realization. So any other big things that you did to impact this operation, uh, any knowledge you can drop on us? Well, I mean, I think that probably the most important cluster of things was putting in place uh, systems and uh, layers of accountability on both an operational and financial basis that enabled us to keep score and see how we're doing Mm. Um, for years and years and years and years. P&Ls were not timely or accurate. Uh, inventory wasn't done. 
the way it should have been. There wasn't any real level of financial acumen um, throughout the organization. And I mean, layer by layer, we added we added that to the point where today, I mean, we are an open book management company, meaning that we teach an, a mini MBA course to every one of our team members that wants to learn about how our financials work. <clears throat> we we publicly post our financials for our team to see and understand. Um, and we actually give frontline team members, uh, the, the host or the busser or the server or the cook, uh, ownership over different lines on our profit and loss to where they are seeing what's happening on their line. They're forecasting out for the period what it's going to be um, based on both actual numbers and what they anticipate happening as we get closer and closer to the period end. Uh, and so we basically went from a financially illiterate organization to one that is deeply focused on the numbers and has a clear line of sight as to where we're going and what we're doing. That's huge. And I love how you said you, you created systems to track progress. I think a lot of people when they think of creating systems, they think of, uh, I want to create systems so I can uh, get time back you know, to, so I'm not stuck in the day to day. We can create these systems to teach other people how to do all the things that keep me so busy, but also those systems help you if you create systems to track so you can see progress. So you can see if your hard work is actually paying off. Uh, we don't think about systems to track things. Uh, and that's so huge. Uh, what, what did this process of going to an open book? Uh, well, actually, let me scratch that question. I'd rather ask you, why is it so important that people down to the buster know what, like how the, the business, the books work? So that's a multi-layered answer. Uh, the the first piece um, I, I would turn to is really for their own sake. Um, I don't expect most of our workforce to be with with us for their careers. Uh, I, I expect that some will, but the majority of people that come through our doors uh, and collect a paycheck from Kirby Lane are, are here on a temporary basis as they're going to school or getting ready to uh, start a, a white player job, uh, something along those lines. Uh, and I think that what we're offering is a course on financial literacy, um, a real, I mean, a real robust education in how to understand how a business operates. Uh, and that's something that as an individual is invaluable. And my, my hope is that when anybody leaves our organization, that they're going to go into their next job knowing how financials work, uh, knowing how business works on, on a level that is superior to that of the person that's interviewing them. So or that's hired them. That's the first reason because you're investing in this person. You're giving them a new skill set. You're leaving them better off than when they came to your business. You're transforming them. That's, and that's the hope. Um, and some people take advantage of it and other people don't. And it's still, I still find myself scratching my head as to why we're offering this incredible free education. In fact, we're paying you um, to come in and get this education. Uh, and, and not everybody takes advantage of it. In fact, we offer, I don't know if, if this is unique to us, although I don't know of anybody else that does this on, on a company-wide basis. For anybody that owns a line on the P&L, uh, and has gone through financial literacy, we, we offer a profit-sharing program 
And so it doesn't matter if you are the VP of operations or the newly hired host. Um, we, we let you share in our organization's profits if you take responsibility for, for a line on the, on the income statement, which I think is great. Now, the other piece uh, to answer your question about uh, why this is so important um, is if you have two sets of eyes looking at your financials, you're going to inevitably miss something. If you have 20 sets of eyes, those things probably aren't going to be missed. And if you have 700 sets of eyes, it is it is creating an environment where there is a laser focus on on what's happening. Mm. And what what I find is that oftentimes the very best ideas don't come from the corporate office. They are they are bottom up ideas that start on on the front lines. And I mean we've had we've had servers and bussers come up with with ideas that have saved the company tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars when annualized. Um, and that's pretty incredible. And it's ideas that I never would have come up with. I mean, I sit in front of a computer all day long. Uh, but when you're on the front lines, you see those things. And I think that that's really, really a powerful thing. Yeah. It sounds like you read the great game of business. <laughs> I did. I'm a big, uh, I'm a big advocate of that. Yeah. In, uh, in fact, I, I'm thinking, ahead, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's fine. Uh, when, when I hear you talk and what you're saying about uh, getting more eyes on what's happening in the business, we have the power to tap into infinite or not infinite, but like we can let three or four people make the decisions and know about what's going on, or we can let 30 or 40 people know about what's going on. And we're tapping into the, the mind that the power of the mind of, of 40 people who could offer suggestions and give feedback. And we limit ourselves. We don't give ourselves access to that power because we're so just narrow minded with who can make those decisions and who can know this information. Why not open it up to everybody? Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And, um, I couldn't imagine a situation, uh, running an organization that's not open book. I couldn't imagine it. Any other um, benefits from I open wouldn't book do it. that you can drop on us? I can think of one more, but I want to see if you can think of it first. <laughs> well, I mean, an, a, another, another piece is, I mean, how many times have I gone into a former restaurant, a black eyed pea or, a, or whatever. Um, and it's apparent that they close their doors. Um, and they didn't tell anybody. The employees didn't know that this was coming. They had they had no idea that the place was struggling, um, and then all of a sudden doors are locked and they're out of a job. Mm-hmm. I mean, our team members are never going to be in that situation because a uh, we're so focused on our financials, and if it looked like anything like that was ever approaching, there would be dramatic and drastic steps that would be taken to ensure that that we weren't closing a location. But but b they would know that was happening mm. if, if in fact we weren't able to write the ship yeah. and they wouldn't come as a surprise and they'd be able to start making contingency plans. Yeah. Um, you, so I think that's important. That's definitely important. And uh, I'm sure we could go on all day. There's one more I want to add on to this uh, before we move on and kind of wrap up this free flowing part of the conversation. But the other big part of it too, is when you tell people to do something and you don't give them a reason why, they're less likely to do it. But when they understand the impact of the actions that they take every day and they understand that, that there's a result, there's a cause for every action that they take in their day, they're going to be a lot more likely to do that thing because they know what's going to, the impact that that action is going to have on the business and the bottom line. Uh, people are going to be a lot better about waste, right? When they know what that's worth and how that impacts their ability to, uh, you know, grow and, and create more opportunity for them. You want to reflect? Yeah. 
No, it's uh, I think particularly with a millennial workforce, when you're able to provide a why, I think that's a very very powerful thing with that with that demographic of people. This has been great up to this point. I, I still want to keep going, uh, but I want to leave it up to you to decide what is discussed with our, our our time left. Is there anything we haven't discussed up to this point? Any value you can provide to myself and my listeners with our time left? Um. I think I offered all of the smart things I have to say. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, I mean, we were able to touch on everything that I really wanted to touch on, the things I'm really passionate about. Uh, I'm glad we got into open book management because that's that's really something that I, I just I just love that we do that. Um, so no, I mean, there's not there's not any other areas that I really want to talk about that, that we haven't gotten to already. So real quick, uh, where did you learn about open book management? What are some resources you can share with my, my listeners if they want to take that that concept and apply it in their, their business. Sure. I mean, and this is, this is a lesson of, um, just luck or showing up. I, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was like, we were introduced to an accounting software called compete, which we use and has been incredibly helpful. And from compete, we were introduced to, uh, a restaurant specific accounting firm out of, out of Ohio, I was at one of their CFO boot camps, even though I'm not a CFO. Um, and it was it was there that I was introduced to Zingerman's Delicatessen mm. out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which I don't know if you and your listenership is familiar with Zingerman's. Ari's a past guest on the be. show. And uh, Zingtrain, the folks over at Zingtrain, I've been in, in contact with them and we're negotiating some topics for discussion on the show. So I'm really oh, excited about well, that. Cats out. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was just one of these sort of fortuitous things where uh, it wasn't Ari, it was actually Paul who came and presented at that boot camp and he presents on open book management. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I've never seen anything like this before. And, and I was familiar with Zingerman's uh, having, having eaten there as a, as a customer, but I had no idea that, that their business processes were, were what Paul was describing. Oh, man. Um, and so it was through Zingerman's and actually through a Zing train course and reading the great game of business that we really started thinking about uh, open book management. Um, and I would recommend anybody who's, whether in the restaurant business or otherwise, if, if you have the opportunity to go up to Ann Arbor and take a Zing train course, uh, regardless of topic, y- you will get value from it. Yeah. Um, and it was from there that we were introduced to uh, Springfield Remanufacturing Company and, and Jack Stack, the originators of open book management. Yep. Um, author of the and Great Game of Business. Actually, yep. What's that? The author of Great Game of Business. Yeah, correct. And I mean, it was we ended up developing a pretty robust partnership with SRC, and it was through that partnership that we launched Open Book probably four years ago. Um, and it's, I would say, the most important decision we've ever made at, at this business. Awesome. And Bo Burlingham was another past guest in the show. I can link to those in the the show notes. He was a co-author on the Great Game of Business, and all yeah. these guys we're talking yep. about uh, are like in a tight network with each other. They uh, are part of a community called the small giants, which is another, if you want to learn more about these people who are doing these things, that's a great community to be a part of small giants. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. And the only other book I can think of that shines good light on this is uh, a slice of the pie by Nick Cirillo, um, who another great guy who's a part of that, that network. He's pretty close to those guys as well. They're all preaching the same thing and it's a great perspective. Um, Man, the only other thing I want to bring up because I'm really interested in this uh, is I saw you had eight partners in your restaurants. Uh, do they all have equity in the business? So our different managing partners, um, 
you know, the answer is no. I wish they did. Uh, I actually don't have equity in the business either. Um, wish I did too. And <laughs> and I think this has been a function I talked a little bit about at the beginning part of the show, um, this interesting dynamic of having two divorced uh, parents who are running a business together um, because of the nature of their relationship. Uh, and I think the historical, I don't know, for lack of a better word, mistrust that's existed between the two of them, there has been a huge reticence to open up that equity pool to anybody. Um, and so I actually see that as something that holds our business back and I would really like to change that. Thank you for being open and honest about that. Cause I mean, that is a kind of a personal question. Uh, but I'm curious, why do you wish they had equity? What, what, what is the, the significance, the, the impact of your people having equity in the business? Well, a, to say that you're an owner of, of your company is a powerful thing mm. psychologically, regardless of whatever monetary benefits it might provide to be able to say, yeah, I'm an owner. I have a vested interest in what's happening with the business. I mean, that's that's a pretty incredible thing. It also creates alignment um, that might not otherwise exist. Mm. Uh, and so I think that that's really, really important. Um, and, and then and then the other piece is obviously the monetary piece, but I think that that's secondary because uh, we do try really hard to pay our people well and we offer a profit-sharing plan. And it's, um, I mean, there's elements of, of how we operate that perhaps creates a, is synthetic equity interest in the business, but actually having that ownership stake, I think is, is a really important thing for a growing business. Awesome. I'm, I'm loving this conversation and I'm tempted to ask one more question uh, because I'm really enjoying the conversation and I feel like there's going to be value here. So if you're okay with time, do you mind if I ask one more question? Yeah, no, go for it. So, uh, when I was speaking with Maddie, uh, the woman that was kind of in between the middle person, she mentioned that you'd be uh, you'd be able to speak well to uh, the mistakes you made. And I'm curious because I think we can learn a lot from failures, a lot from mistakes. What were one or maybe two of those mistakes that you made that you can drop on us real quick so we can maybe avoid making those same, those same mistakes? Um, the, the biggest mistakes I've made have fallen into a pattern of um, similar behavior. And I think that the biggest mistakes I've made have all revolved around being too trusting of people. I mean, it's my nature to assume people have the best intent. And um, I've made I've made a number of pretty material mistakes where I have either allowed for partnerships to be created that I think are in the best interest of the business that in fact the the outside party doesn't have the business interests at heart um, and instead has a very sort of narrow self-serving interest in mind um, or situations where, where people have been given information that they shouldn't have been given. Mm. And the mistakes I've made have really been around. And I, I feel terrible saying this because it sounds like such a cynical cynical way of looking at things, but the mistakes I've made have really been around trusting people more than I should. And even though I try to do the right thing and the people that we work with here at Kirby Lane try very hard to do the right thing, that's not, that's not the case for everybody. And people can be ruthless and people can be mean spirited and mean hearted. And um, just making sure that you vet who you are working with on a very, very 
careful and diligent basis is, is something that I will do on a go forward basis. So what's one thing that you do now that you didn't do then regarding vetting people like a, a system or a check that you've created for yourself to protect yourself? So, um, for years and years, uh, the decision-making process was me. Um, if there was a major decision to be made, uh, I, it essentially boiled down to me making it. Uh, we don't have a board of directors, though I wish we did. Um, and that's another thing I'm working on is trying to put in place a true board of, of directors or advisors who could provide a check and an outside uh, set of eyes just to see if something passes the sniff test. We don't have that in place yet. Um, but what I do have today that I, that I didn't used to have is a network of, of business people, not, not necessarily restaurant people, but I have a close network of people that if I'm about to go and make a major decision, um, I'll share it with this group and I'll get feedback and, and opinions and, and that's super, super valuable. Is it like, helpful. is it a, is it an actual mastermind? Do you, is it a part of a mastermind or is it just like separate people or is it a group of people that you meet with regularly? Uh, no, so it's, it's, I'm part of a, an organization called YPO okay. young president's organization. And uh, it's my small forum that I work with there. Yeah. It, it's so invaluable to have a group of people who are like-minded in the same situation who maybe experience the things that you're experiencing to go to, to meet regularly and have a list of things that you want to bounce off these people a weekly, monthly, whatever it is. Uh, it's essentially a mastermind, right? It sounds like it's very similar to a mastermind, uh, a place maybe it's a stretch, but yeah, I'm actually not familiar with mastermind, but, but what you're describing is exactly what I have. And that's, and that's really great. Awesome. Uh, one last thing before we go take a break to thank the sponsors. Uh, you said that your biggest weakness uh, or the biggest mistakes you made is in trusting people. Uh, and I've also noticed that sometimes our biggest weaknesses are also our biggest, biggest strengths. And I'm curious to know if your ability to trust people has helped you more than it's hurt you. Uh, and I, I, I worry people to, uh, or I caution people not to be so distrusting uh, because I do believe that trust does more good than harm. And you're going to get burnt when you trust people. It's just like, you, you know, you can't bat a thousand all the time. Um, and typically trusting people does lead to better opportunity in the long run. So don't be discouraged by it uh, is all I would say. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good way of looking at it. And I would, and I do agree because in the business, I mean, you, you don't do open book management if you don't trust people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that has been uniformly beneficial for our organization. And so anybody who works with me is going to tell you that I'm probably the least micromanagey uh, supervisor they've ever worked with. And, and the reason I don't micromanage is I trust our people to get the job done. Great. And if, if I didn't, I couldn't be effective in my role. Awesome. And so, Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I can't wait to hit the speed round. We'll be right back after thanking the sponsors. Everyone loves processing invoice after invoice. It's the best. <laughs> Not really. Just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks. That stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running unstoppable 
restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call one 866 Mention Restaurant Unstoppable and receive 10% off your first three months. And say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with Sorcery AP Automation. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member FDIC. And we're back. The first question I have for you, Mason, is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Just taking care of myself Mm. and making sure I get enough sleep and get plenty of exercise and eat well. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, I think that my tendency to... Trust? To trust people more than I should. <laughs> How did I feel? Um, I knew that was pro- properly vetting it. <laughs> yeah. uh, what is one operation, or sorry, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? I always like to ask the people that I'm that I'm interviewing to tell me a joke. It doesn't need to be a funny joke. They just need to have the ability to tell a joke. What are you looking for? Just the ability to, to tell a joke, the, the sense of humor. Yeah, I mean we're in the we're in the service business. Whether you're whether you're a server or you're Again, the VP of communications, um, you're serving our team members. And so having the ability to communicate and, uh, and you know, have a sense of humor about yes. things is important. Fun is so important in this industry. Uh, what is a current challenge today? Uh, navigating the family business dynamics. How are you dealing with that? I don't know, with a lot of therapy. <laughs> um, just trying to work through different points of view mm. and trying to create win-win situations for everybody. I love it. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be a core value, a way to act. So I really stress personal growth um, in education. That's super important to me. And whether that's financial literacy education or sending people up to Ann Arbor for Zing train classrooms on, on service or simply networking within, within the Austin business community. Personal growth is incredibly important. 
Awesome. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So it's common within your four walls, not common within the industry. So I, this is one of my favorite things that we do. Um, we allocate, we budget 1% of sales to something that we call guest appreciation. And what that means is we give our, our frontline people the ability to comp someone's meal for any reason or no reason. Perhaps they hear somebody is having a birthday and they, or maybe somebody is in Austin because their, their house in Houston flooded during Hurricane Harvey and our server knows about that. I mean, it doesn't matter the reason, but we are empower our people to guest appreciate uh, a lot of different meals uh, across all seven of our locations. And the impact that that has on the guest is God. I mean, I can't even tell you. It's it's so cool to see the stories around yeah. people just getting so excited and not have to pay for their meal. It really reminds me of a lot of what a lot of people do when just empowering their staff to make decisions on the spot uh, regarding yeah. what the outcome is going to be. And that's very similar. Of oh, if you have an opportunity to go the extra mile or to to do something that's totally unexpected, then you have the green light to do it. Up to this point, setting the limitation one percent of sales, so people know not to get too crazy with it. But giving them that free range to do incredible things is so powerful. Well, and, and from a marketing perspective, I mean, anytime I've ever had a meal picked up, I mean, there's a place here in town where I'm a real regular. Uh, so Christina, my wife, and I will go in there, and every once in a while they'll pick up our meal. I tell that story to everybody. Mm. I mean, anybody who will listen, I'll tell that story to. And I, and I sure hope that we are creating a, a group of, of super, super advocates uh, for Kirby Lane because of what we're doing on the guest appreciation front. It's the power of the unexpected. People go into a restaurant and they expect a certain amount of things. And if you meet those expectations, they're not going to rant and rave about how you met their expectations. It's when you exceed the expectation and you have to truly do something that is totally unexpected to get anyone to talk about you. That's true. Uh, share one book that will make us a better person or restaurant operator. Well, obviously, I love the great game of business. Um, I mean, I think that's a that's an absolute essential read, whether or not you're in the restaurant industry or not. Mm. Um, I think Zingerman's Guide to Giving Great Service is also pretty much the the gold standard when it comes to uh, guest service. Again, whether in the restaurant industry or something else. Awesome. Uh, and this is episode 477. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 477. I'll have those links in the show notes as well as the, the links that we're, we're about to recommend. And also, I know the great game of business is on audio. So if you guys don't listen to audiobooks, I'm telling you, it will change your life. I have read so many books I would have never gotten through if not for audiobooks. Do you listen to audiobooks? Um. When I was commuting a little bit further and sitting in traffic, I, I did. And these days, my commute's five minutes. And so I have not been <laughs> listening to audiobooks as much recently. But it, it is a huge game changer, in my opinion. Uh, it's changed my life, personally. All right. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. Yeah, just head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable if you are interested in picking up the habit of audiobooks. Share an online resource or tool. This could be a magazine, a podcast, any place you go to get information or leverage a, a resource. Um, so I've been working with this group, uh, recently that does executive coaching called building champions. Um, and that's been incredibly helpful, um, in terms of prioritizing, um, not just my, my business, but my life and my values. And so they have a website called buildingchampions.com. 
Beautiful. Uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant? This could be a POS. You already mentioned compete that has influenced uh, operations or service profitability, anything along those lines. Yeah. I mean, moving from a non-restaurant specific accounting software to compete was a huge game changer for us. The other big game changer was um, putting in place an automated kitchen system um, and not having paper tickets any longer. I mean, that's been, that's been revolutionary for our business. What system did you go with? Uh, right now we're using a Loha's uh, a system. And what, sorry, you broke up a little uh, bit. We're, actually, we're, we're using a Loha right now, but we're, we're actually in the process of transitioning to toast. Nice. I love toast. Great company. Uh, and they do have a pretty good KDS display too. Is that the reason why you're going with toast? Um, no, the reason we're going with toast is, um, is really to get our point of sale on a cloud-based platform as opposed to having to rely on a server. Why, why is that so important? Well, because the rule is that your server crashes when you're the busiest. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's what happens. Yeah. If you're on a two hour wait, that's a pretty good guarantee that your server is going to crash and, um, your internet's going to go out and everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Getting onto a cloud based, more flexible, more adaptive system is going to be a really important thing for our business. So when you're looking at the cloud based systems, what were the other ones you're, you're interested in? You know, that, that piece I said about not micromanaging our people, <laughs> um, our, uh, our VP of, of systems and strategy vetted this whole process. And I actually don't know, uh, I don't know with Toast and I trusted him and continue to trust him. And I think, I think he made the right decision. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'd be interested in talking with him because, uh, there's a lot of people, you know, it's just one of those things. There's so many variables to consider and it'd be interesting to hear his thoughts since he just recently went through the process. Um, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom. Things you know to be true that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy. What would those things be? Well, that's a pretty deep question. Um, going back to what I said about personal growth and continuous improvement, I think that any work environment that is a, a critical piece. So whether or not people take advantage of those opportunities is irrelevant as long as they're offered. And it's an incredibly powerful when, when you as an employer or as a parent or, or in whatever capacity are able to offer opportunities for personal growth. What's number two? Number two, um, this is more, more personal um, than it is work related. Um, and actually I wouldn't say that this is necessarily, I'm not listing in these in order of importance, but I think that number two is that my wife and family know that, uh, I deeply, deeply loved and cared for them. Mm. And, um, you know, if you can't, if you can't find or show love in, in life, that's a, that's a really sad thing. And it's important that Christina would know that, that, that she was the most important thing to me. Beautiful. And what's the last thing you can leave with us before wrapping up? Just make sure that you're, you're having fun doing whatever it is you're doing. If you're miserable as an attorney, go find something else because guess what? All of us are going to be gone one day and you might as well not waste your life 
um, doing something that you hate doing. Mason, I dig it. This has been a great conversation. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire in this industry and believe it needs to be made an example of? The restaurant that I have more respect for than any other uh, is actually a Tex-Mex place that's right across the street from our office here in Austin called Matzel Rancho. Um, we at Kirby Lane get really busy. Matzel Rancho gets really, really busy. And to see them manage that business the way they do is just so impressive. And I mean, I've eaten there, God, I've eaten there hundreds upon hundreds of times. And I don't know that I can count a single bad experience. That's awesome. Matzo Rancho. Rancho. Uh, who's behind that? Who's the name behind that? Um, so the original owner was a guy named Matt Martinez. Um, I think he started the business in like 1950. Um, and it's now in the second or third generation. Um, but yeah, Matt, Matt's El Rancho is, is just, just fantastic. Look out guys. I'm coming after you. And uh, lastly, let the folks at home know if we want to pick up the conversation, maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe we have a question about something you recommended on the show. Uh, what's the best way to connect with you? Social handle, email, anything you're comfortable with. Um, they can just go on to www.kirbylanecafe.com. That's K-E-R-B-E-Y. And um, there's, a, there's a contact form there. Beautiful. And we, we read all of them. Awesome. And again, this is episode 477. Head over to the show notes and uh, the links will be all over there to connect. Uh, the resources will be over there. The books recommended will be over there. And a summary of today's discussion all at episode 477. Mason Ayer, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, uh, to share your wisdom. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thanks. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Cheers. Well, there you go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. And there were two points that stood out to me in today's conversation. Uh, the first one was the idea that... Uh, a lot of us go to franchises as a model to grow fast and to make money fast. And we look at growth so many times and think of like outward lateral growth, a brick and mortar growth. How many locations can we open in the shortest amount of time? How can we make money fast? And the cool thing that's happening in the industry right now is the restaurants, the brands that are really emerging and really doing the best are those brands that choose to grow inward, that choose to grow by doing the little things right and being better every day on a small scale than on a big scale. Uh, they, they grow inward. It's that personal growth, that impact. They just, they decide to go deep, not out. Uh, and when you bring more people into an organization, uh, you've got to train those people. You got, you got to impact them and mold them into the partner you want them to be or the partner that fits right with the brand, the mission, the vision, the values of the organization. And every time you bring a new person on, uh, it's up to the original people to influence those people to live to their standard. And with every new person, you're diluting yourself just a little bit more. You can only impact so many people deeply. Uh, and the cool thing that's happening is people are choosing to stay small and have a big impact. 
uh, and to do big, to go deep within their the people in the, into the lives of the people that work for them, into the communities that their businesses are in. And I think that's incredible. And I think more businesses need to have that mentality. Uh, what is success? Is success how many locations you can open and how much annual revenue you can earn? Or is it how many lives you can change? How many people you can influence for good? And that's why I love these small, uh, independent, multi-unit operators who choose to go deep instead of out, grow out. It's just so powerful. The other big thing I got from today's conversation is just the, the great advice, the benefits that come from open book management. I don't need to repeat those benefits here. I think we made it pretty clear in today's conversation. Uh, but again, there's some great resources out there if you're, you're interested in looking uh, to do that within your business. Open book management, again, Zingerman's uh, series of books that are out there. Uh, I can link to those in the show notes. Uh, the Great Game of Business, Nick Cirillo's uh, A Slice of the Pie, all examples of some great books uh, to learn more about open book management. All right, guys, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with Mason Ayer. He was great. Uh, if you want more episodes like this, the best way you can support the podcast is by sharing it. Uh, the more people that listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, the more I can do, the more resources I have to put this great content in front of you. I'm working on trying to get on the road again. And uh, getting on the road really helps me make those impactful relationships, those transformative relationships where I'm not just talking to somebody uh, for an hour and a half, but I'm, I'm going into their restaurant. I'm hanging out with them. I'm, I'm having a beer with them after the recording. They're, they're opening up their networks to me and uh, they're teaching me things that go beyond just the interview. And, and as a result of that, you guys get even better content. So, if you want to support the show, the best way to support it and to compliment what I'm doing is by sharing it. And thank you in advance if you do. You can also leave a five-star review. Those help so much. Uh, and the last way you can support the show is if you ever hear about a product or service on the show that you're interested in leveraging in your restaurant, uh, let me know. Shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com or use my links. Many times there's uh, an affiliate link that I get a commission if you use my link. So those are just some of the ways you can support the podcast. And I'm so grateful if you've been doing these things. Thank you so, so much. Uh, I think that's all for today. Uh, thank you so much for sticking around this long until next time. Peace out.